Now lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. Amen. How many of you have prayed that as a child? Yeah, that's what we were taught. It's one of the oldest prayers outside of Scripture known. It goes back to the Middle Ages. Uh, Jeff, I will not mention the fact that that was based upon fear that a vampire would take your soul away. I won't mention that. But that's the prayer that I learned and that you learned that was very common for all of us. It's a concern about children, and we know now, according to Scripture, very plainly, that if, if a child has not made a choice, uh, if they've not got that age of accountability, as we call it, uh, they go to heaven when they, when they pass. But I don't want to think about children, I don't think about adults, and I don't even want to think about the passage of Scripture I was speaking of here in Matthew 24, is talking about the, you know, the, the rapture and the return of our Lord and His coming. I want to think about that time that's coming for all of us. Because as my mother very wisely pointed out one time when my brother in a drunken rage was saying, I don't think the rapture is going to happen. It's been going on for thousands of years and I'm not worried about that. My mother looked at him and she said, yeah, but you know what? Your time's coming sometime. You know, we live and we die and then we face eternity. And as we end this series thinking about the truth between heaven and hell, I want to talk about statistically what's going on in our lives and how we live. When you confront your eternal destiny, the perception you have known changes as time goes along. When you're young, you don't worry about that, and it's not a concern that you have. You're sort of like in a, in a microcosm. You're like that person that's got to pay their taxes, and it's the first of the year, and you know that you've got till hopefully April the 15th. Of course, it's changed since then. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you put it off, and something happens, and you think you've got a reason to wait, and suddenly, on April the 15th, the post office is absolutely jammed. Right, George? With people dropping it off, wanting that stamp, to say April the 15th on that postmarked letter going to the IRS. You can't do that, though, with your life because we don't know when April the 15th is, eternally speaking. We're not sure when that time will come. Remembering the old revival services from long ago when the preacher would stand up and say, if you were to die right now, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Many people would struggle with that. They weren't sure. I've told you that when we restored the sanctuary about seven years ago, uh, the pews were taken apart completely. They were down at the, at the old armory, and a company came in and restored them. And as I talked to the folks down there, I said, you know, I understand there are four kinds of wood in the, each one of these pews for the shape of them and everything. And, and the comment they said to me was this. They said, they're in pretty good shape all except for the top of the pews where people gripped onto them during the invitation. I said, you're exactly right. But some people hold on like that. I remember growing up in the 70s, and one of the first soul-winning programs that came out was called EE, or Evangelism Explosion. It was written by Dr. D. James Kennedy. I went through that program. I've shared that with you before. That was one of the, uh, the first of seven programs that I had to go through and memorize and I used to win souls. Now I understand that you just sit with somebody and talk to them. 
You build a relationship with them. Jesus taught relational evangelism. You build a relationship with somebody, and then you share with them from your heart. But in EE, there was a program where you would go through a series of questions, and at one point you would ask the question, if you were to die right now and you were to end up at the gates of heaven, and they said, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you suppose you would say? That was the question. Well, I didn't exactly remember it that way, and, and they put me out on, on uh, Capitol Avenue near Capitol View Homes next to the uh, Georgia State Capitol, and I was walking down through there. I was, I think, 15, 16, something like that, with a young girl about my age, and we encountered the first person there, an, an elderly man that lived in the projects there, walking on a cane, bent over, and we asked him in our own crude way. We said, if you were to die right now, where would you go? And he looked up and scratched his head, and Jeff, you know what he did. He turned and he pointed the other direction. He said, I guess I'd go to Grady Hospital. We didn't know what to say after that. He had given us the honest answer. If he died right now, they'd take him to Grady Hospital. And sometimes that's the closest we get with sharing with somebody about their eternal condition. I don't want to talk about where your body will go if you die. I want to talk about your spirit, your soul. Because talking about heaven and hell and dealing with details about that is meaningless unless I confront the reality that everyone in this room, unless the Lord returns, will face that ultimate time. You'll come to that moment, those last waning minutes of life. You may not be given a warning. It may happen so suddenly that you're not even aware of it. But in this passage, it deals with several important things, and I want to think about those, and the first is simply this. Why have we lost our passion for souls? Why is it we've forgotten about the, the earnestness and the seriousness of the fact that everyone will die one day? We, we tend to not want to talk about unpleasant things. When I was a child, when someone died, they would bring the body back into the home. The, the body would be prepared, and, and the casket would be brought into the home, and usually in a front parlor somewhere, the body would be placed and family would come and visit. We've become very sanitized since then. We don't think about death that way. We don't look at people. A lot of times people go away to a hospice center or a hospital or a nursing home and that's where they pass and the family's not around. People don't want to deal with those unpleasantries. Many times as minister, I have been the one that stayed with the person as they were dying. And, and I've had a number of occasions where the family did not want to be there. They didn't want to have to deal with that. They've sanitized their life and they've moved away from death. They want it to be something that they don't have to confront. But the reality is we all have to confront that. If you're lost, if you've not made a decision for Christ, and you understand that you have to make that choice, you have to confess that you're a sinner, Confess that the only way to get to heaven is through what Jesus accomplished for you. He shed blood on, on, on that cross. is the only thing that can get you into heaven. God is not going to give you a pass or overlook what you've done or count up all your good deeds and weigh them out against your bad deeds and say, oh, well, he's a pretty good person. He'll go there. No, there's one way to get into heaven. One way. That's through Jesus Christ. And it's not through just simply confessing at the last minute, but it's in having a relationship with Him. If you've not made that decision, and you're aware that you need to make that decision, 
then I've got bad news for you. You've made a decision. You said no. Every moment that you confront that and don't desire to make that choice, you have made a decision and something happens in your psyche and in your mind day by day. It becomes less and less important to you to deal with. And you tend to push it to the back burner of life. And so many people who do that fail to confront that before it's too late. Our culture trains us to think about the here and now. Everything's instant and and you want it right away. The old adage, uh, a watch pot never boils. Well, we don't have to worry anymore. We can put it in the microwave and it'll boil before we realize what's going on. We want everything right away. Remember when you got your first PC at home or laptop and you turn it on and you sit there and patiently wait for it to come on? Now what do you do? Hurry up, hurry up. I, I know that. I don't have to go through all that. I can remember waiting for the first personal computer that I had in my home to turn on, and it took five minutes and 30 seconds. And I'd turn it on, I was fine. Now, you turn one on, if it's not up and running in 30 seconds, you're angry. We are not a patient people anymore. Pause sometimes at a red light when you're the first one in line, and the light turns green, and count to five and see what happens. Horns will blow. People will yell. There will be angry looks. We're not a patient people anymore. We want everything right away. And we forget that in life there are things you have to wait for and you have to work on over a period of time. Your salvation is one of those things. Not that there's a requirement that you walk with God for a period of years before you can get into heaven. No, heaven is not like life insurance. You don't have to have it for a period of time and it be in effect before it it qualifies you for the use of that at some point. The reality is this, in order to know, for you to have the confidence and the assurance that you have a relationship with Christ, you need to walk with him for a period of time. You need to go through that process of confessing and forsaking your sins. You need to feel the urgency of the Holy Spirit within you, convicting you of sin in your life. If you call yourself a Christian today, and if you say because you attend church or you've joined a church or you've been baptized or whatever's happened, if you say all that and yet in the midst of life you sin and repeatedly sin and you don't feel a sense of of conviction about that sin, you don't feel a sense of urgency of dealing with it and you don't feel a fear of, of having to face your eternal maker because of that sin, you better go back and check your warranty you'd better go back and see whether or not you really made a decision for Christ. I have a strange way of dealing with young people when they come forward because very often kids have a herd mentality about them. One child will come forward and they've been in a conversation for some time with me about about Jesus and they'll come forward and then their friends around them wanting to support them and be like them will come forward when they do. And the kids I'm worried about are the ones that come with them. Because I'm not sure they've really processed the understanding of sin and salvation. Because I don't want that child to come down and make a decision, get baptized, and then somewhere later in life when they need the Holy Spirit of God within them, he's not there. 
And I've had adults become very angry because they'd say, as a child, I, I was baptized and, and, and God just isn't with me now. God doesn't overlook us and neglect us, but sometimes we make the decision in the wrong way, and that's why I'm so serious about you making it. Do you know why most people die and go to hell who attend church? Do you know why most people that, that, that join a church and get baptized and participate in church and serve and teach Sunday school uh, die and go to hell? Very simple. Pride. Something happened in the past where they really didn't confront their sin. They, they really didn't fully understand. They didn't have a conviction of sin. They came forward because it was the thing to do. Or maybe their family was coming forward and they came forward with them. Yet they had not really made a, an individual personal decision to accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And then as time rolled along and they became a part of church... They became vested in church. They became important in church. And then they began to get a conviction in their heart that they weren't really saved. Things happened that let them know they weren't a Christian. But then they thought, if I go forward now, what will they think? If I, if I walked that aisle, people will look at me and, and they'll doubt you know, they'll say, well, well, that's terrible. That's horrible. Surely they're a Christian. If they're not saved, what about me? And I've had people tell me that they did not want to come forward because of that. Pride will send many people to hell. And that's sad. Because that should not be the way it is for us. You know, there, there's this idea, and I talked about it last week just briefly, but there's this idea that's very popular right now that, that people teach uh, uh, what they call soul annihilation. That If you die and go to hell, you won't be there forever. You may hurt for a little while, you're lonely, you're separated from folks, but the reality is at some point, you'll cease to exist. And some people actually excuse the idea that... Let, let me tell you how prominent this, this belief system is. Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. They've always believed it. The Worldwide Church of God, founded by Herbert Armstrong, believes that. The Christian Science Movement believes that. Mormonism believes that. The New Age Movement believes that. The Seventh-day Adventist churches believe that. And even one of the great Anglican theologians who died just a few years ago, John Stott, from England, believe that before he died they can believe all they want to my bible says that nothing will quench the fires of hell jesus said that and when i say that i'm telling you jesus the god who created heaven and hell said that i don't want you to logically talk away your understanding of a fear of eternal destruction. I don't, send, I don't send anybody screaming into heaven for fear of hell. That's not how you get saved. God was very plain. Paul said it to the Christians in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, I believe verse 27, he said, knowing this, that the goodness of God compels you to salvation. Not the fear of God, the goodness of God. And because of that, we can trust him. 
But I want you to understand the importance of that. I want you to grip that in your heart and your soul and hold on to that. Secondly, I want you to realize this. In reality, I want you to know what's really at, at stake. This passage talks about the days of Noah. You know, I, I posted something on my Facebook site the other day um, because I'm a little bit tired of, of, uh, of, of these folks that, that, that show up on Facebook and they put something on there and, and they criticize something you've said and they're supposed to examine what's right and what's wrong. What are they called? What are those folks that, 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 that show up on there? and Fact checkers. Thank you, fact checkers. I put, I put a little posting on there. I don't, Terry, I know you saw it because you commented on it. I said, all of Noah's fact checkers drowned. Think about that. All the people that stood there for 100 years and criticized him for building that ark drowned in the flood. They would have given anything to have been in that boat. Noah built the boat, but remember, it was God who sealed the door shut. Why, why did he do that? Why didn't he tell Noah to seal the door shut from the inside? Because he wanted to prove that it was his desire that those people outside not survive. They were evil. They did not believe in him. They had walked away from God. They had an understanding of who God was. God spoke to them through nature and through creation. They had the testimony of those who were alive. There were people alive the day the flood started who knew the story of right and wrong and who spoke it. We know for a fact that Methuselah was still alive. For 969 years, he preached repentance. And nobody repented. The reality is this, we must be careful because we can convince ourselves we've got plenty of time to decide. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, said, The vague and the tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the conscience of millions. We painted a picture of a God that is so kind and so generous and so loving and, and more like Santa Claus than anything that somehow he, he wouldn't do anything like that. In the beginning of the book of Revelation of John, it talks about some churches and it talks about the four, fourth church spoken of there is the church in Thyatira. Jesus warns the church in Thyatira against their tolerance, which was leading them to immorality and idolatry. Think about this. Our culture often confuses love and tolerance. The two couldn't be more different than ever. If you love your child, you will not tolerate the sin that's in their life. If you love your child, you will not tolerate laziness. You will not tolerate their being self-focused. You'll let them know you're not the only child in the world. You're not always going to be the center of the world. Tolerance has destroyed our culture to such a point that they've lost touch with the reality of what life is about. As a culture, we spend so much time eating and drinking that we don't notice that the floodwaters are rising around us, just like in the days of Noah. For the single mother who hasn't seen a child support check in months and is trying to figure out which past due bill to pay, she's in the midst of a floodwater. For the person that owes back taxes for many years and seemingly can barely pay 
their credit card debt, let alone their back taxes, the floodwaters rise. For the husband who receives a pink slip and yet he has three children at home that are hungry, the floodwaters are rising. For the family who's in the midst of watching their loved one die slowly with cancer, the floodwaters rise. We're in a nation where the floodwaters are rising of debt. Do you realize that the personal debt that you owe right now through our government is so much so that you will never be able to pay it back in your lifetime? When all that money was handed out, all those trillions of dollars was given out that seemingly came from nowhere, and people thought, well, we'll get through this storm. I promise you the storm of COVID was nothing compared to the storm of staggering inflation. $5 a gallon for gas is nothing. You want to see a disaster, look at Venezuela. Look at Cuba. Look at some of the other countries that have walked away from God as we are walking away from God and have found themselves in a place in the midst of the floodwaters drowning. It's a terrifying place to be. Paul told the Corinthians, if there is no final resurrection of the dead, we're all in trouble. In fact, he said this to them. He said, we're like the hedonists. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we'll just die. But the reality is, no, we don't just die. We have an eternal destiny. And we will answer to God one very important question. It's simply this. What did you do with the name of my son, Jesus? Did you accept his gift of salvation or did you waste it? Did you share the truth of salvation with others or did you just simply spend your time focused on yourself? People who have no fear of God soon have no fear of man and they have no respect for human laws and for other authorities. Have you looked around you lately and seen what's going on in the world that we live in? It's terrifying. It's beyond any understanding. Look at Chicago and San Francisco. Look at, at, at the state of California or the state of New York or New, the state of New Jersey. They're trying to get rid of, of bail laws. They're saying they're just, they're just not fair. And they love the word fairness. Yet if there's no penalty or fear... What happens? Innocent people die. Would any of you want to live in Chicago today? I wouldn't. One of my favorite cities growing up. I, I thought it's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been to. But right now, it is an absolute terror to be there. Because innocent people are dying constantly. Because evil people feel no respect for the law or for life or for authority. They have no fear. We have lost touch with, with the reality of heaven and hell in the world that we live in. And yet every person that dies faces that eternity. The reality is we've got a choice to make. No one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. Because it was our own behavior and our desire just simply to skirt that responsibility that puts us there. And there's no one in heaven 
disabled would say, I put myself here. Because it was the shed blood of Jesus Christ that put you there. I'm not talking about fairy tales. I'm talking about reality. I've been with too many people as they were dying and, and when their eyes were literally looking between this world and the next and there's a peace that absolutely gives them the tranquility of the soul that they are so happy. They can look and they can see eternity and it's a place of peace and rest. I'll never forget being in the room with Vivian Taylor when she died. Just like the prophet Elijah, she spoke words of wisdom to her family and friends, words of love and compassion. She closed her eyes and she said, thank you Jesus for saving my soul. And she opened her eyes and looked and she saw her mother and her father who had been gone for many decades. And she saw her entire family and she fell back dead as she stepped into heaven. Yet I've been with people who screamed and they moved their feet screaming and saying they could feel the flames. It's a little warm in this room, but trust me, it's, it's, it's not that hot. I've seen people literally scream, no, no, hold me, please, don't let me go, don't let them take me. You say, oh, they were, they were on some kind of painkiller. No, these were people in hospice care that were laying there, and they had no feeling whatsoever in their body. They were at perfect peace one moment, and then death came upon them the next. You've got a choice to make. Are you willing to gamble with your own soul? I pray not. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much that you love us with such an unsearchable love. Long before you created us, before you created this world, you prepared a way of escape from judgment and hell for us. You loved us so much that your son lived a perfect life and died a perfect death just for us. Yet we are given a lifetime to make this choice, and yet many, many ignore it and pretend that it's not there, just live their life as if they're not worried at all. But Father, I pray right now that we would be searchers of our own soul, considering where we are this very moment, each individual, that we would make that decision and would not leave this place without making sure, beyond all doubt. For Father, we understand without your Holy Spirit within us, we cannot live a righteous life. Sin will always captivate us and call us away. We will not have the strength to overcome. Human strength cannot live a righteous life. Only with the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power of God within us can we live that life. So, Father, based upon that, I ask that you would speak to those today who are struggling, who have not made that decision, who need to make that decision. And may this be a time of choosing for them. And may we be obedient to respond as we are called. For we pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.